Hello and welcome to this Innovation Forum podcast. At the recent Future of Food conference, I was delighted to be joined by Erin Priddle from the Marine Stewardship Council, Tracy Cambridge from Thai Union, Mark Zimmering from the Nature Conservancy and Dave Robb from Cargill to discuss how the seafood sector will respond to growing market concerns on climate change, overfishing and human rights issues. Coming up are some highlights of the session. We join it just as I ask Erin to make some opening comments. Erin from MSC, perhaps I can turn to you first. What are the challenges that you see associated with a changing climate and what should the sector be doing to address these effectively? This is something that's been, I think, emerging as a big trend and important issue in this world for quite some time now. And I think, you know, one thing is clear, the evidence is mounting and it's very apparent that climate change is having an impact on species distributions. We are seeing this gradual this trend of species moving uh, northward in response to climate impacts. As we get this northward distribution of fish species, you have to think about that in the context of management systems. And you also have to think about that in the context, not just of management, but of international management and the responsibility that we all have in terms of ensuring that stocks are harvested in accordance to scientific advice. Now, as the Marine Stewardship Council, we have three key principles. I'm sure a lot of people on this call know about that, so I won't go into detail. But a couple of those relate to one, setting really robust harvest strategies and harvest control rules that help protect the stocks into the future. And then another one is linked to the governance and the regulatory management, the setup of fisheries management systems. And so when you have this changing stock distribution, and then you have stocks that really love to do this, these big mover species like the pelagic fisheries, and so to add a little bit of context to this, I'm going to give an example of the Northeast Atlantic pelagic fisheries. And so we've seen documentation by ICES and others of, you know, the accelerated shift in these species. And then what the managers and the coastal states responsible for their management and their protection are faced with in terms of getting management in line with stock advice. And so, unfortunately, we've seen this play out in the management framework. We've seen the mackerel first get suspended from the Marine Stewardship Council program in 2019, unable to reach attack agreement in line with scientific advice. And then after that, in 2020, we had Atlantoscandian herring and also blue whiting fall out of the program. So when you think about the supply chain impact and you think about the rigor of a program like the Marine Stewardship Council and also the supply chain demand for verification of sustainability, these are big issues. These pelagics represent the biggest biomass, as far as I know anyway, in North Europe. And they were all part of a program, all feeding a global supply chain for certification. And when they're out of the program, that creates a big problem and a big question mark about their future and sustainability of them. While some might say, yeah, well, their biomass is actually okay right now. What our program is saying is not about today. It's about the future as well. And so it's really important as part of the program that fisheries that are in it and managers that are supporting it understand that this is about ensuring that the trend of these fisheries into the future are on a healthy one with good biomass levels and good agreements that can be resilient in the face of climate change. And so that's where you're seeing this interplay between climate change and kind of static management systems that can't adapt and respond to actually what's playing out in terms of the ecological change as a result of climate change. Okay, so I'll end there, but I just want to say in terms of the responsibility of the sector, I think this is multi-sector, so you know, it's not just about the supply chain strictly, but this is also about NGOs, it's about governments, of course it's about the private sector as well, 
And it's even about third-party verification systems like the MSC to help facilitate the conversations needed to ensure that we have adaptive, resilient management that can really ensure that total allowable catch, the tax, are set in line to what scientific institutions are advising. Could you just briefly touch on the reasons why the agreements couldn't be reached? Living in the UK and spending a bit of time at the seaside, I know there are a lot of mackerel there because the only thing I can catch, but they're easy to catch. There's a lot of them there. It's a surprise that these aren't involved in, in the MSC or have fallen out. So what are the principal reasons for failure to reach an agreement? I think you'd have to be around the negotiating table to really understand why they failed to reach an agreement. And there's different theories as to why an agreement wasn't reached. Unfortunately, fisheries are one of those commodities where there's a lot of politicization around tax setting. Some of these fishing dominant nations, which are high governance, high information states, you know, so we are talking about some of the most well-managed fisheries in the world, really, out of Norway and Iceland and places like that. So why can't they come to an agreement? So one might suggest that it is the fact that fishing dominant nations that have fishing as a kind of welfare state, the Faroes is 25% of GDP, in the UK it's less than one. The skin in the game, I think, around, you know, ensuring that they get taxed to support their fisheries is probably fairly high. And so I think the prioritization around that, ensuring that they get a good outcome. And these are ministers that are in there around the negotiating table and heads of delegations. They want a fair outcome. You know, and I think that there is probably fair rationalization around that. So I think if you're, for example, a nation where you're seeing an abundance of mackerel coming into your waters, yet you don't have the quota to fish them, you're kind of faced with this dilemma. It's sort of tragedy of the commons, really. What do I do when actually fishing vessels are going out there catching all of this particular species, but they don't have the quota to actually, you know, bring them to market? So you end up getting this uh, mismatch between the quota allocation and catches. And this is happening in a lot of places right now. And we see this play out with the common fisheries policy as well under the relative stability key, where catches were actually set back in the 70s. But, you know, does that really reflect modern day harvesting practices? So you either have to have a good way of trading that quota between fisheries, or you have a bit of a reset on that quota allocation. So I think until something like that happens at the RFMO level, and perhaps that's something that NEF can help facilitate as well, looking at those quota allocation criteria, we might see this type of quota setting for quite some time yet. Fortunately, we do have some initiatives like uh, the North Atlantic Advocacy Group, who are a kind of supply chain consortium looking to advocate to governments around driving these fisheries to a point where they can reach agreement. And I understand that they've just published a three-year policy FIP in this regard. So I think there are actions right now that are happening to try and get these fisheries in a position where they can reach an agreement. And should that be successful, then perhaps that could be a best practice example or case study that could be applied elsewhere, where we're seeing this not just as something that's happening in the North Atlantic, but something that's actually happening globally, particularly right now in tuna fisheries and RFMOs. Let me turn to Dave Rob from Cargo. Same question to you then. What do you see from Cargo's perspective as the challenges associated with the changing climate in terms of fisheries? And what are you doing to address these individually and collectively with others in the fishing value chain? To build on the points that Erin's just made, obviously wild fisheries are highly affected by climate change and the management strategies around them. But also we see that our other raw materials for aquaculture feeds will also be affected by climate change. We see the progression of crops, polewoods, 
north or south, depending which hemisphere you're in, with increasing temperatures. Extreme weather events as well, risk of those rising, in, so you'll get crop failures in certain regions at times. So there is absolutely a need to work across our supply chains to ensure that we have resilience through sustainable management of those supply chains. Fisheries is the most obvious one, but also the same approach with row crops as well, working towards regenerative agricultural processes to make sure that there's there's crop cover on the ground to, to keep the soil in place, reducing emissions, but also making the soil more resilient against weather events. This really fits into Cargill's broader strategy to reduce our carbon emissions against science-based targets by 2030 for our scope three emissions, whilst also working on our scope one and two emissions with a science-based target again for 2025. But particularly in fisheries, I'd, I'd really like to talk a little bit about the points Erin just made as well. She talked a little bit about NAPA and working in the Northeast Atlantic. And I think we joined NAPA at the beginning of this year, at the same time as we stopped purchasing blue whiting, to try and put pressure on the regulators who are in the position of control, let's say, around opening, uh, finding a solution for this. And I think we've got to try something different here. There were six and there are now seven coastal nations involved in the mix with, with Britain having a separate seat in that now as well. And it is complex. And we see people looking at historical catches. We see people looking at current catches. And we need a framework to resolve that within the scientific recommendations. We're also involved in fishery improvement programs elsewhere to work particularly in, in some of the developing countries to start to build a fishery management plan, which will make the fishery resilient for that nation into the future. And in some places as well that are already looking at transitioning fisheries towards more direct human consumption as well, perhaps for fisheries that don't have a historical local consumption, but can provide a really good nutritional basis in that region, as well as for export uh, revenue to, to bring food to elsewhere in the world, whether it's through aquaculture or directly human consumption. As wild fishing stocks shift, is that a time where perhaps aquaculture is something that should come more to the fore? Is that something you're seeing in your supply chains? It's very clear the expectation is very large on the, for the growth of aquaculture and FAO highlight that, WHO also highlight it for human nutrition and health. So aquaculture can bring a lot to the table, but it's got to be well managed and we need those feed resources to be able to feed it, except for non-fed aquaculture, obviously. The expectation is there, but we've got to be able to manage its growth, supported through sustainable feed, supply, feed chain supplies and, of course, sustainable farming practices on the ground. Tracy, perhaps I can turn to you, Tai Union. For you, what are the challenges associated with the changing climate and how, how do you see the sector addressing these uh, effectively? I don't think I need to labour the points that Erin's made on the challenges it is for us as a brand when the stocks are shifting and through the biomass is healthy, but because of management and disputes over quota that they're no longer MSC certified and bringing the loss of that MSC logo on products, of course, raises questions with the consumer about whether it's sustainable still or not. And so you end up this climate issue, this biological thing that's happening in the ocean, impacting right down to what the marketeers and our companies can promote as MSC certified and not. So we have those. And I think in terms of climate change, so for, for us at Thai Union, we're just relaunching our 2025 strategy. So extending our global sustainability strategy from our original 2016 to 2020 commitments and climate action really 
features quite prominently now. And healthy planet and healthy oceans, healthy living is all part of that discussion, really tying it all together. And we contribute, we're part of the UN Global Compact. So really keying in and setting targets for me and for Thai Union that are science-based. And I'm quite sure Mark will talk in a moment about the importance of data. And that's really where I wanted to highlight on this point for us as a processor, the challenges around demonstrating tangible impacts that we're having. I mean, we do greenhouse gas reduction. We're down 70% from our factories and our operations, and we can produce good figures on water consumption and reduce waste to landfill. There's a whole plethora of things on top of the fisheries element that we've got to consider as a processor. So engaging with our suppliers, who are the fishing vessels and the farms that we source from, helping them to understand what demands are being put on us as really oper you know, operating in the middle part of the supply chain, because we're under pressure from our retailer and other brands that we supply into to support their reduction. And I think when I, we talk about human rights later, it will be a very similar thing I say, which is making sure that every part of the supply chain is clear about what it is they're able to do and drive and not duplicate. Because on one of your panels earlier, Ian, I heard one of the panelists say that actually the speed at which the different movers in the chain can implement some of these things. And for, for me, obviously, it's I'm more on the wild capture. Dave's on the, uh, you know, he can answer for aquaculture in a minute or more when we talk about net zero. But engaging with those fishing companies and how they measure their fuel efficiency. We understand that fuel efficiency is a big one for the fishing sector for reducing carbon footprint. But how I engage with them for effective reporting and actually not own their reductions. You know, obviously that's that's my scope three, but for them to take responsibility for which is in with their own, which and speaks to what your panelist earlier was talking about, everyone doing their own, doing it well, communicating it well up and down the chain will play a role in speeding this up and, and getting to deliver what we need to. Let me bring in Mark from the Nature Conservancy. But let me put the same question to you. What are the challenges then associated with a changing climate for the seafood sector? And what do you think the sector needs to do to address those effectively? What we've heard Aaron and Dave and Tracy reflect are a couple of things that I want to highlight on. At the end of the day, the priority here is resilience. Changing climate is going to have really dramatic impacts, some of which we understand, some of which we don't on our oceans. And in order to be able to drive resilience, we need to be able to adapt and adapt much more nimbly, I would make the case, than we can today. And core to our ability to adapt is really to understand what's happening out on the water. There are no doubt critical political issues that arise in these transnational fisheries. And I do think that industry can have fairly significant impacts in driving productive outcomes, given that while these fisheries may be prosecuted you know, in a transboundary manner, they're ending up on the same kind of retailer shelves and in the same products, whether they're coming from one country or another. The challenge that I see is that when we look at climate, right, we've got this range of stressors on our oceans, acidification, warming, pollution. And in that context, we kind of overlay overfishing, high levels of bycatch of endangered, threatened, and protected species, and think of them as a threat multiplier. In order to address those challenges, we've got to get better data on the underlying science information. We need to kind of get the rules of the game right, and then 
the kind of compliance data that we need to have confidence that fishers are playing by those rules. And so organizations like the Nature Conservancy in partnership with countries, with industry, with, with Thai Union and others are invested quite heavily in things like electronic monitoring on fishing vessels, right? Video cameras on boats to give us that really granular catch data, effort data to understand both the impacts that fisheries are having, but also to back out of that, you know, the changing dynamics in terms of overall ecosystem and fishery health. Because I think the world that we're looking at is one where supply chains are going to have to shorten and we're going to have to be making much more dynamic decisions, both in terms of procurement and management to adapt to this kind of changing landscape of consumer expectations, of market expectations, and then ultimately of kind of underlying resource health. Just on the data point, straight borders have been cameras on boats. How then do you take that and get data from it? I mean, it seems it could become very labor intensive if you're simply going to have to look at cameras on boats, discover what's going on. I mean, that's a hugely labor intensive process. So is there any technology that can help speed that along? I think the good news in some sense, Ian, is that with electronic monitoring, kind of let's call it version one, what we have today, which in some sense has been around for a couple of decades, it has proven itself to be fit for purpose and cost effective. And generally, the way that you manage turning this massive amount of raw video data into useful information on science and compliance is you audit it. You review 5 to 20% of that information in order to get a census of both, again, science and compliance data, supply chain verification. I think as we look to the future, we know that the same algorithms that Facebook and others apply to differentiate a photo of Tracy, Aaron, and Dave can be applied to fisheries data. It's not fundamentally a technology problem. And so I think what we're going to see is that electronic monitoring and tools like it are going to become faster, cheaper, and ultimately more useful. Today, the primary use of this data is risk mitigation and supply chains, right? Lots and lots of commitments have been made around social and environmental sustainability, lots of commitments around traceability. But at the end of the day, most of the problems that exist in the world are out on the water, out in the field. And if you're not verifying what's happening out on the water, it doesn't solve problems that exist. And, and so I think we're seeing tools like electronic monitoring viewed as really powerful verification tools, but also folks starting to look at the optionality around them. How do you monetize this data? How do you drive efficient supply chains? So I think big picture here, Ian, is it's workable today and kind of technology and software development is going to make it quicker, cheaper, faster, more valuable through time. And my thanks to Erin, Tracy, Mark and Dave for their insights. We've published a few other sets of highlights from the recent Innovation Forum Spring Conference series on our website. Do check those out if you found this episode useful. But that's all for now. I've been Ian Welsh, and until next time, goodbye. Mm -hmm.